0: What the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, What the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel Kotka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast what the hell is going on with the coronavirus today? (laughs) Mark, what the hell is going on?
0: So we're talking about the economy and particularly the relief bill that Congress passed, which uh, includes something called the Paycheck Protection Program. This is a program that was advocated by Glenn Hubbard and Michael Strain, our director of economics here at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, introduced by Senator Marco Rubio and Senator Ben Carton, uh, Republicans and Democrats, Bipartisan Plan. And what it's doing is essentially replacing the lost revenue of small businesses and medium-sized businesses with less than 500 people working for them so that they can keep people on the payroll and keep paying their rent and utilities and other things and basically stay in business because people are saying this is like the Great Depression or the Great Recession. It's actually the Great Suppression. We are in an economic suppression. We have ordered businesses to stop operating for the sake of public health. Those businesses are healthy. And if we help them ride out this this shutdown, they should be able to come back in operation. But to do that, they have to have their workers employed so they don't waste a lot of time searching for workers and workers spend a lot of time trying to find jobs and connecting with jobs, which will just slow everything down.
1: So I think the right way to think about this, and the more I hear this, the more persuasive it is, is you know people analogize this to the financial crisis and to what happened then. And really, the analogy is is. Imperfect to say the least. The right way to think about this is like a war. This is a sudden, hopefully one time event that is a, a sharp punch in the face, but one that once the circumstances are gone doesn't change the fundamentals. And that's why you and I, you know, both conservatives of various stripes, <laughs> as, as you all know, <laughs> but that's why you and I some are some more stripey are, than others. Some more stripey than others, indeed. <laughs> Uh, But that's why you and I are are much less queasy with the notion of this massive stimulus than we otherwise would be. Sure.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, you know, people are saying conservatives generally don't like to intervene in the economy. The phrase is laissez-faire, right? Let the economy function. We've already intervened in the economy by forcing businesses to shut down. So what we're doing here is trying to help intervene to help them survive the government mandated shutdown so that when we do lift the government restrictions, they can function again. But, you know, I like your war analogy, but I think it's even slightly different than that because unlike the 2008 financial crisis the economy was doing great right before this there was no there's no structural problems in right. the economy right we were chugging along we had historically low unemployment productivity was high the economy was booming all good unlike a war or an earthquake or a natural disaster, there hasn't been widespread physical destruction that we have to rebuild from that'll take years to rebuild from. So so you don't have that factor. And then the other thing is if these mitigation efforts work, uh, we won't have massive population loss and a loss of workers and people to drive the economy. So theoretically, if we can keep these businesses on life support during the you know medically induced coma that we put them in, then they should be able to function fine once we come out of this. Recession.
1: Right. And that's why this bill was so important. You know, it's like, I mean, there are all sorts of analogies. It's like a bridge loan. It's, you know, it's getting you from a good point to another good point and finding a way to mitigate, you know, the, the, the cliff <laughs> that's between those two points. What I can't figure out is why at this moment it's a good idea for on the second tranche of this. So we had a $2 trillion bill that passed with this paycheck. T- Protection that enables businesses to hire people to keep people employed, you know, while their business is basically sleeping mm-hmm. and if <laughs> we can call it that, hibernating. hibernating. Let's there call it that. Let's instead. use more analogies <laughs> <laughs> and a, more cliches. There's a bear in the woods. <laughs> I think the, the expression you were looking for is "there's a pope in the woods." Actually,
0: oh, thank you. <laughs> happy Easter to you too, Danny. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and happy Easter to all of you. But we return to the point. But now the second bill that is before the Congress, because in fact, they didn't put enough money in, you know, what, Mike Strain... Glenn Hubbard and others have called for at least $1 trillion in business support. And, of course, that bill that Congress... For this Congress, paycheck protection. For program. this paycheck protection. And, of course, the original bill didn't contain that amount. It contained $350 billion. That clearly wasn't enough. That money's already about to run out. And so Congress has gone back to the table. They're injecting more money into the system. And weirdly, in the Senate, the Democrats have decided that it was in their interest to filibuster it. I can't quite figure out why. Yeah, I
0: can't either. Well, first of all, so Glenn and, uh, and Mike, when they advocated this program, they said to replace 80% of small, medium-sized business revenue, which is what we need to do in order to keep those businesses alive, would take $1.2 trillion. To replace 100% of it would take $1.8 trillion. The Congress, in its wisdom, decided to whittle that down to $350 billion. And we're six days into the program, and it's already gone through half of that, and it's probably only days away from being completely depleted. So the Republicans have proposed upping that to 600. Billion dollars. That's, that's not, not enough. enough. <laughs> it's like okay, we understand now. We have economic models that say you need a at least a trillion dollars and probably more in order for this program to work. So why the idea of doing this in small tranches? Every time we go back, gives the Democrats a chance to hold up the bill and say, hey, we want this other stuff. So people understand what the bill did. And part of this, when the Democrats held this bill up once for for a week during the time that they were holding up, six point six million people applied for unemployment insurance. So that week was very very costly uh, in terms of people losing their jobs. One of the things they demanded was an add additional $600 in unemployment for everyone who applies for it on top of their local unemployment. $600 a week. A week, yes, and to extend that for four months. The problem with that is is that it creates a draw for people to leave employment and go to unemployment and the whole point of the paycheck protection act is that you keep people tethered to their to their jobs so that they can start working right away. You don't want to have it. once the economic restrictions are lifted, you don't want to have a delay where people have to find jobs and wor- and businesses need to find workers. You want them to just go and get going so we can re- recover quickly.
1: So what's wrong with the Republicans? Why uh, why do you think the Republicans are so reluctant despite the the persuasive nature of this math. Why do you think they're so reluctant to put the requisite amount of money in just because of the amount that it is? I really don't know the answer to that.
0: I know that doing this in small bites every time we come for another bite of the apple gives the Democrats a chance to filibuster and demand something else.
1: It's not just that sort of structural problem. It's not just that political problem. It's also the fact that businesses... If they're not sure, you know, if you and I ran a small business and we employed 50 people and we were getting enough of a loan for to keep them on for the next week, but we didn't know that there was going to be enough money for the following two weeks, I think we'd be very hesitant sure. to make that decision. And that's kind of the uncertainty that Republican leaders are building into this system, is that they're saying, yeah, okay, it's there this week, but, you know, we may need to come back. And, of course, when we come back, God only knows what they're going to do.
0: No, that's exactly right. I mean, we need to create certainty for these businesses. And this is another thing. The unemployment benefits were for four months. This paycheck protection was only for two months, which is half the amount of time. So they've made unemployment so much more attractive than work and then remaining tethered to your employment that it's going to slow down the recovery for a number of reasons. Well, first of all, it's going to push more people onto unemployment. Second of all, there's a lot of businesses that are hiring. Amazon is hiring, Walmart is hiring, uh, delivery companies are hiring, and now these people have to compete with the unemployment office where people are The Wall Street Journal estimated that depending on the state you're in because of the underlying unemployment benefits, most people are making between $15 an hour and $35 an hour being unemployed. Oh, I'm out of here. And I. <laughs> But, I mean, that. so if you're on unemployment, you're basically getting full replacement wages. And The Wall Street Journal had a story about how a lot of companies are laying off workers precisely because they know they can repl- get full wage replacement. There was a Equinox, the gym uh, company, has said that it is laying off its workers and precisely because and furloughing people because they know that they can replace right. their wages. They don't feel guilty about it.
1: This is the road to perdition. This is the road to being Europe. is where people just don't work because, frankly, they may never get rich on unemployment, but they've got a lot of free time, and that is hugely dangerous. We've
0: got the author of the uh, Paycheck Protection uh, Provision, the man who came up with this idea along with Michael Strain uh, with us today.
1: So Glenn Hubbard is the John Macon Visiting Scholar. And I just want to say a quick word because I didn't realize that he was the John Macon Scholar. John Macon was a wonderful guy, a senior economist here at AEI who unfortunately died much too young. But how nice to be reminded of him every time we introduce Glenn Hubbard. Uh, Glenn is the John H. Macon Visiting Scholar for 1920 at the American Enterprise Institute, but he's also the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. He is also the Dean Emeritus and Carson Professor of Economics at Columbia Business School. In other words, he's somebody who is a pleasure to have on and we're going to learn a lot.
0: Absolutely. Well, Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to have you here. Look, you are one of the leading advocates of what is now known as the Paycheck Protection Program, which is a program that's uh, providing forgivable loans to small and medium sized businesses to keep them afloat, to keep workers employed. That program is so popular. Marco Rubio said 480,000 loans totaling $124 billion in six days were doled out. When you advocated for the program, you said that it was dramatically underfunded and it needed about a trillion dollars in order to work they only gave it 250 billion. have you been vindicated
2: <laughs> well i think the program is a good idea it enables uh, small and mid-sized firms to uh, maintain business continuity and importantly keep people on staff the worst thing that could happen during an economic shutdown which is no fault of any business owner it's the health policy action for the shutdown to cause business failures and, and mass unemployment would be a real problem. So that, that's really the goal of the program. You want it in principle to just be a grant, which is what it is. But of course, you can't stand up an agency in real time. So banks have relationships, and that's why the program's designed the way it is. I'm a little frustrated in two respects. One is on implementation. I don't think the Treasury Department uh, is doing the job it needs to do to get the program off the ground, although I do give the banks uh, a lot of credit, as Senator Rubio's comment uh, suggests. The other is funding. The law contemplated spending $350 billion dollars. The legislative language corresponds to more like a trillion dollars, but Leader McConnell uh, and others have already pushed in that direction. So I'm optimistic we'll get there. I think this is an important policy intervention. It's better than putting millions more Americans simply on unemployment.
1: I want to just dig down into that. What do you think the Treasury is doing wrong here?
2: Well, I don't think it's wrong as much as not getting things clarified. So if you're a bank you need to know uh, exactly what you need to verify in a loan application. What are you responsible for? What will be applicable anti-money laundering and know your customer rules? These sound like they're in the weeds, but they matter to banks. Remember that the banks were burned in some respects by the government uh, during the mortgage crisis. They were retraded, they believe, uh, by the Federal Housing Administration. So I think banks have real concerns, I think these are all fixable, but they require Treasury just doing it.
0: The goal of the program is to keep people employed as opposed to going on unemployment and losing their jobs. Why is it so important to keep workers tethered to their businesses for the recovery?
2: Well, I think for two reasons. One, this isn't a typical recession that's uh, just a movement in the business cycle where you see marginal firms leave and people lose their jobs. This was a pandemic where an economic shutdown caused this. So this isn't about weak businesses and maintaining weak businesses. The idea is that since the shutdown is not, hopefully, long-lasting, people can keep their employment relationships so it becomes easier to restart the economy. And obviously, if you keep the flow of income going, you don't need to contemplate unemployment insurance or not paying your rent or any of the other knock-on effects. So I, I think it is a very, very positive development. It wouldn't be useful in a normal business cycle, but in a pandemic, yes.
1: Do you think that we are now seeing this being used in the way it was envisioned? Because, of course, what we hear about, and obviously it's, it's anecdotal to a certain extent, is that lots and lots and lots of businesses are, in fact, laying people off. They're not able to use the resources for business continuity.
2: Well, they can. So in other words, if you have already laid your workers off, you can hire them back and still get these loans. That is a feature of the legislation. I think some people had to move to layoffs because the program had not yet been implemented or clarified So if the regulations become clear, I think we will start to see that improving. And we're talking about very large sectors of the economy in the service sector, in hospitality, in restaurants, and so on, that are a lot bigger than they were, say, a generation uh, ago and are very important to our economy's functioning.
0: So one of the reasons why we need to keep workers employed is because when the recovery comes, when we lift all these restrictions, this economic suppression we've done, we want these businesses to be able to ready to go quickly, right? Right, Um, right, absolutely. And so the other element of the bill was a massive increase in unemployment benefits, $600 a week on top of whatever people's unemployment benefits would be for four months. There was a front page story in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago that companies are citing that- and saying that that is incentivized them to lay off workers because uh, they feel better about laying off their workers because they know that they're basically going to have replacement wages, and so it's actually increasing unemployment. Is Are these two things incompatible, what you're trying to do with the small business program and the paycheck protection program and this massive increase in unemployment insurance?
2: They're not incompatible, but they're definitely inconsistent. I have to hope it's a drafting error. If it's a policy error, it's a big one. You never want to make non-work more beneficial than work. In this case, I think it's a mistake just to lay people off because the businesses may not be there if they haven't applied for these loans uh, to hire the workers back. So, yes, it's something Congress should not have done. The only good news, I will say, is that it's very temporary.
1: So is it very temporary? I mean, this is always the question that you ask, you know, and you know me well enough to know I'm no economist. But one thing I remember from my economics classes in grad school is once you give somebody a benefit, it's very hard to take it away. We, you know, we always talk about the risk of becoming Europe, where it's basically more remunerative in many European countries not to work than to work. Is that a risk for us? And is that something that's going to be very hard politically?
2: It's a risk and it's one we should resist. And I would make it bigger in the sense that when we have $2 trillion to fund the CARES Act, the right way to think of it is we're fighting a war, a health crisis. It should be a one-time action, uh, much as it was to borrow money to fight World War II. This should not be the occasion for starting continuing programs or expansion of the welfare state. That wasn't a good idea in February, let alone now.
0: So, Glenn, you wrote recently that we know we're going to have a sharp recession because of the pandemic. The question is, can we stop it from being a doom loop? Can you explain what a doom loop is and why that's such a danger?
2: Sure. The pandemic itself is, uh, in econ speak, a kind of supply shock. We're shuttering part of the economy for health policy reasons. A doom loop is more on the demand side. If a lot of businesses fail, if a lot of people lose their jobs, and it's hard to restart, Aggregate demand can falter, and what could have been a short, sharp downturn turns into a long, protracted downturn, Great Recession, or even depression. That's what we're trying to prevent
1: how risky do you think this sort of doom scenario is? I mean, how, how worried are you about it, particularly as there continues to be a lot of doubt? Because of course, uncertainty is truly the bane of business. As there continues to be a lot of doubt about when things are going to get back started up again, how worried are you that this, this could actually turn into something much deeper than we hoped it would be?
2: I am worried. The way I have described uh, the downturn when people ask me to talk about shapes like V's and U's and W's, the metaphor I use is more like the Nike swoosh, so you have a quick downturn. The slope of the upturn is more gradual, like a checkmark or a swoosh. And the reason for that, I think, is that confidence doesn't return necessarily so quickly because of uncertainty. Now, you can't eliminate all uncertainty, but you can make it better. For example, if we were to make it clear that we're not going to use this as an occasion to raise business taxes, we are going to clarify uh, that we're going to put a floor under demand by having some either military spending, infrastructure program, whatever your favorite idea is. I think that would help a lot with business people's confidence.
0: How worried are you that we could, rather than a v-shaped recovery or a nike swish recovery we could have a hockey stick recovery
2: well i am worried about that. that's obviously what we're trying to prevent if we have that it's our own failure it would be a policy failure and so i, I think that we just need to make sure that we're doing all that we can to maintain incomes during the period of the shutdown have a reasonable discussion between economists and public health care people about what the length of a shutdown should be, and then try to rebuild business and household confidence after the shutdown. If we do those things, I think we'll avoid the hockey stick.
1: Well, let's hope we do those things. I'd, when you talk about confidence in Amer- the American people, I always have it. When you talk about confidence in the wisdom and, and activities of our political class, I'm much, much less enthusiastic. I hear you. I know. God, we uh, all of us who've lived in Washington know this all too well. So I want to ask you, I'm sitting here with three articles that I, I printed out. They're all from the Wall Street Journal the first one is how the coronavirus changed everything about economic policy. You know, the second is coronavirus measures could cut economic activity by a quarter. And then the last piece from today is the dire economic numbers intensify debate over lifting coronavirus restrictions. I mean, this is the question, I think. At a certain point, aren't we going to run out of money? Aren't, aren't we going to not have the resources necessary to actually mitigate?
2: Well, at some point, obviously, that's going to be true. I think we're quite a ways away from that. I would worry more that if we see a doom loop take place, we have political and social ramifications of that doom loop. I obviously support public health officials' judgment in an economic shutdown of the economy. How long it should last and the pace of reopening strikes me as a decision that requires, uh, I hate to sound a little weedy, but some cost-benefit analysis. Uh, pandemics are hard but so are economic shutdowns and we need to have this discussion
1: okay let's say that the shutdown is over you know i don't i don't know what date let's just pick june 1st june 15th whatever it is at that point we have at a certain moment as we look to you know re-energize as you talked about you know to re-energize whatever it is the swash, the check mark we have to start talking about where this this money comes from are we just printing money? Is this going to be inflationary? What are, what are the implications once we're out of the health crisis?
2: Well, right now, as long as we're doing one-time borrowing, uh, like a war, we stop the spending and GDP grows and we reduce our debt to GDP ratio. Debt service burdens are very low in the U.S. and most of the world because of very low interest rates. I'm, I'm not too worried about that. What would worry me is if we use this as an occasion, as Vice President Biden suggested in the paper today, to offer brand new social programs with costs attached, just saying, well, we just borrowed money for the coronavirus, how about this? That road leads to fiscal perdition."
1: You no, know, we asked Scott Gottlieb exactly that question, just on the healthcare side, which is, you know, uh, is this a huge incentive to to begin to nationalize healthcare, a la Bernie Sanders and AOC? And Scott's response was, look at nationalized healthcare in the UK and in Italy and see whether you like that. So, but I do think that's a real risk.
2: I think it is a risk, but I, I think to me, what we've learned is that our critical public health infrastructure was probably underfunded and that we need to shore up. But none of that tells me we need to be nationalizing the consumption or production of healthcare.
0: So it sounds like it's going to be as much as 18 months, two years before we have a vaccine. So we might have a therapeutic in the fall, we might be able to lift restrictions and move to the sort of South Korean model of uh, containing the people with the virus, but allowing everybody else to go about their lives. But. That means that, you know, for example, Danny and I have a group of friends. One of our hobbies is going to 80s band concerts. I don't see myself at a concert anytime soon with like, you know, thousands of people standing, you know, body to body. Sporting leagues, are people really going to go back to the NFL and the NHL and the NBA and sit close to each other? Are people going to want to sit in those tight airline seats? You know, we may have, even if we lift these restrictions, the economy is going to be changed dramatically when people start coming out of their homes, isn't it?
2: I think that's right. It's going to be gradual. But I I would remind you, you know, we were maybe a little worried about flying after 9-11, and and we all did. I think it will come back. The question is, at what pace? And will technology and other things offer alternatives, you know, online gaming or uh, watching streamed versions of big sports events rather than attending them in person? I think all these are questions. There are also questions at a more mundane level about restaurants and shops. I get a little worried when I hear public health officials say, well, we'll just have restaurants run at a third or half capacity. Well, anyone who's run a restaurant knows that you can't be in business doing that. So I think these are going to be fundamental changes to think about.
1: Yeah, No, I can't even imagine. I think that, I think that's really part of the challenge that we're facing right now is that we don't actually know what our recovery looks like. And there's so much disagreement on the health side, uh, you know, about the the whens and the where's as we look at the South Korean experience. But now as we look at, for example, the Singaporean experience where they're looking at a reinfection rate that is pretty dramatic. It's that uncertainty that I think is going to actually be harmful, even as people suggest that we start to get back into
2: business. Right. And to make that uncertainty a little clearer, we're going to have to have more testing so that we know a little bit more about what we're talking about. And we should remind everyone, including public health officials, sort of elementary statistics, that numbers they're giving are point estimates and they're confidence intervals. And so sometimes the public gets whipsawed when they hear 240,000 deaths one day and 60,000 deaths another day those are actually in the same confidence interval of the same estimate. So we just have to be honest with people about what we know and how fuzzy that knowledge is and and not try to portray that we know point estimates when we don't.
1: I think that's a that has been a huge source of debate. It has been absolutely remarkable. I've said this to Mark on numerous occasions to me how fast discussion about the coronavirus has become almost religious in its in its nature. You can't question, you know. You can't question certain doctors. They've become, you know, papal authorities on, on as we speak on Good Friday. Uh, they've become papal like authorities about you know about what's going to happen. And in fact, there is room for debate. I just don't know if we can have that national debate intelligently.
2: I don't know, but I, I it's not that I would try to debate a physician or a healthcare expert on medicine. I'm not knowledgeable enough to do it, but my caution is simply that let's be honest with the public about statistics when we present them that we are presenting things with confidence intervals or talk about the kinds of models that generated and also talk about the fact that we don't have enough testing regimes in the country to know when we speak of infection rates or death rates, what we're talking about, we know the numerators and those things. We're, we're not altogether clear about the denominator.
0: There's estimates that we could have in the second quarter a GDP loss of you know negative 25, 30 percent. The costs of this suppression are enormous. As an economist. Looking at it, do you see that where where is the point of diminishing returns from the suppression? Right now, we're paying an enormous cost because people say the cost to the economy and in human lives would be far higher if we didn't do this suppression. At some point, you can graph out that. The suppression starts being worse than the virus in terms of its damage to the to the country. Where where is that point in your view?
1: Uh, and before you answer that, Glenn, I just you know one of our colleagues, James oh, has hate- <laughs> tweeted out JP Morgan's uh, economic forecast summer, I and they were talking about minus ten percent in the first quarter, minus forty percent. Oh
2: wow! I hadn't heard that before. Well, those numbers, in in some sense, whatever they come out to be, we know they're going to be bad. That's the part of the Nike swoosh that we shouldn't spend a lot of time thinking about. The economic shutdown caused that. That's that. The question is moving on. And that's your question about how long a shutdown should last. I think it's a conversation and not a zero one, meaning there may be some subgroups of the population that are able to go to work and resume normal lives more quickly than others. A testing regime will help there. I just would hope that we get into that conversation and start talking about it. We will never live a risk-free life. You know, if I wanted to um, not get hit by the bus, I suppose I could never leave my apartment. That would be a foolproof method, but it probably isn't efficient. And I think we need to start having that conversation here. I'm not saying we should end the shutdown early. The question is just at what point should we be thinking about groups of the population and how to take a sensible economic approach?
0: Exit question for you. So President Trump has come under a lot of criticism for setting aspirational dates for when we can start coming back. And I've always felt that what he's doing is he's trying to push the system to t- factor in the economic costs in addition to the health costs and sort of you know push the medical community to find an alternative to a complete shutdown. I mean, are we is he right to be pushing for that and to get the economic costs factored in? Because I mean, he says if the doctors would shut down our economy for eighteen months, if that was the only factor.
2: Well, I think the president is right to be aspirational. I wouldn't put specific dates uh, without consulting experts. But it's not at all a bad idea to ask questions like, why can't we be looking at different groups in the population? Why can't our testing regime give us more information? I I think it's important to be aspirational in that regard. Although giving a specific date without an expert process doesn't strike me as a great idea.
1: Glenn, as usual, you are clear thinking and thoughtful as ever. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about
0: this. Thanks for being on. So one of the great things about Glenn Hubbard is he's one of those economists who speaks English <laughs> and, and and explains things in a way that people like you and I and our listeners can under who are not professional economists, so if you are a professional economist, we're glad you're listening, that we can understand. And I, I just thought that he brought a lot of clarity to our discussion.
1: He did. And one of the things that he said is, I think, going to be the most complex challenge for us going forward, which is, what is the balance? At a certain point, you've got to have that balance. You know, if, in fact, the country were run solely by doctors, uh, as opposed to by people who actually want to see us out and working and prosperous and trading and going on vacation and to sports and things like that, is that doctors are maximalists, right? Are you pregnant? Don't drink at all. Don't even have one drink. No. Do you have uh, some underlying health condition? Don't do not do anything. And that's the challenge for us with this coronavirus, is to figure out what the balance is between the best health advice and the best economic advice. Because at a certain point, people are actually going to begin to Genuinely suffer not just health-wise, but in the, their ability to provide for their children, for their posterity, in their ability to pay their doctor. Um, if we don't begin to restart the economy,
0: and doctors are getting hurt. I mean, the, the hospitals uh, are shutting uh, down. Hospitals are shutting down. I mean, you know, the the reality is we all see the trauma units in you know Queens and Elmer's Hospital and all these other places that are you know they're absolutely slammed. But other doctors are absolutely getting killed by this because they're say, people are not coming in for well checks and for do- regular doctors. Appointments and people—not even for
1: basic elective surgery. If you were going to have a knee replacement, you know, if you're if you need new knees, you're not doing that now. You know, if you were going to get your teeth cleaned, you're not doing that now.
0: So all of this economic activity has has to come back. We're in the suppression phase of the Great Suppression, but we've got to get to to the recovery. One of the things that I thought Glenn said that was most interesting is we've heard a lot of talk about a V-shaped recovery, Uh, rapid decline followed by a rapid recovery. What he seems to suggest, I like the analogy of the Nike swoosh. That it's going to be a little bit more of a, a slower uptick than it was a decline, but he seems pretty confident that we can get that swoosh. Uh, and If you look at the Nike swoosh, the tip of it is higher than where where it begins. So uh, there's hope.
1: This is all great conversation for Nike. Okay, but that, that, all <laughs> a of that is company that I cannot stand, by the way, because Why? they
0: use because they use Uyghur slave labor in China mm. to make their sneakers, and because they employ Colin Kaepernick. But that's a whole other point.
1: But that's a whole other podcast. Yes. Why Mark T. Canceled hates the Betsy Nike. Ross sneaker
0: because Colin Kaepernick said the flag was racist. So I don't know if we want to publicize the Nike swoosh uh, as the analogy but uh...
1: right on the other hand we definitely don't want to see a hockey stick. Yes. So <laughs> so we need to right so we need to find yet another analogy but look, I think that the one thing that's not going to get us to that high point at the end of that curve is this uncertainty. And that's why, you know, as you said, it's important that Trump come out and, and kind of keep pressing that case. But I think it's important that others come out and press that case as well. It's really been fascinating to me how in the thrall of healthcare uh, people we have been without actually hearing, you know, Jerome Powell, you know, the the head of the Fed has said, we need to start talking about, you know, when we're getting out of this. And that's pretty forward-leaning for him, a normally very, very silent man. It's only controversial when Donald Trump says it. Yeah, it's true. That that, but of course that's. But of course that's. It's what
0: everybody's thinking. But this again, this is why in the Beltway, everybody's outraged by Trump's briefings and everything he's saying. In the heartland, his approval for handling this crisis is pretty strong. Everyone was complaining that he was blaming China. I think there was a poll: seventy-seven percent of Americans blame China for the virus. So you know, he is right to be pushing the system to factor in these economic costs and to start coming up with a plan to not keep this country on lockdown for months and months and months, but to start finding a way to come out of this.
1: I think the exit point that we have to make here is that the shutdown has to go on long enough for Joe Biden to learn to remember what the coronavirus is, because <laughs> that's been a disaster for the poor man. He has not been able to pronounce what it is, and he's forgotten the name of both the virus and Wuhan. Several times in news, experts. the focus is going to be on Joe Biden when we come out of this.
0: Well, you know we're going to, you know we're in the recovery when we can start focusing on politics again, because right now no one cares about the election, but it's coming, and we're going to be talking about it soon. And once people are comfortable talking about Joe Biden's senior moments again, we'll we'll know that we're in the recovery.
1: Amen to that. Happy Passover, happy Easter to all of our listeners. We hope that you're spending really good quality time with your families, eating an awful, awful lot of that great Christian tradition, chocolate eggs, and that great Jewish tradition, brisket. (laughs) Bye, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath.